Well, I know that if you've been here every week, probably some of you, sorry, some of you probably, it, it drives you crazy that I review so much, uh, but I was thinking it's so incredibly important that we do that because the only other alternative would be the way I think we probably should study Romans, and that's read through the whole book every week. How about that? No, no, uh, I didn't think we'd have any takers on that. So uh, I, we, I wish we, I wish we could. But really, I mean, that's how you would if you were reading a letter that someone wrote you and you wanted to understand it really, really well. Uh, you would, especially if they lived in a different time and a different culture, and they wrote it in a different language and it had to be translated into your language. You would read it over and over again. You wouldn't like read a passage and then wait a week and come back and try to pick up where you left off. It builds on itself, right? Especially the way Paul is laying out this book. It builds on itself. And if we were to just come in and take a passage and look at that passage in isolation every week, ah, we'd miss the point. And I'm afraid that's what I've done most of my life with this book and every book. And that's why we walk away from it believing that this is just a story and a book and instructions on how to get saved, right? This is, this is instructions about you and how you get saved and how you be a Christian and, and all of that. But it's so much bigger than that. And if we don't, if we don't let it build like a snowball, like, a, you know, just rolling down a hill and get bigger and bigger and bigger, then I'm afraid we'll, we'll really miss the point. That's why we review every week a little bit of what we've talked about in previous weeks. So with that in mind, I've kind of, uh, sorry, you're going to have to do it. I went to the next slide. It didn't do anything. Okay, so that's why uh, that's why I've I've sort of compiled some of our summary that we've done already um, and put it together. So this is Romans one through eight. So see, at least we're not going book or uh, chapter by chapter anymore. So uh, Romans one through eight. Let me turn that on. Okay, uh, in keeping with his promises, here's how I would summarize. You could summarize Romans one through eight a lot of different ways. Okay, and, and trust me, I spend a ton of time trying to think if I had to put all of this that we've covered so far in one big, huge, long run-on sentence with lots of commas and uh, parentheses. If I had to put everything in one sentence, how would I put it? And here's how I would summarize it. In keeping with his promises, that's how he starts the book, God is rescuing creation. Remember what we talked about last week? God is rescuing creation from the reign of sin and death. How? How is God rescuing creation? By adopting, justifying, and giving his spirit to all those who have faith in Jesus with the promise that their mortal bodies, along with the whole creation, will be redeemed when his wrath is revealed against sin. Okay? That's why we have to review every week. Because that is, that is huge. Okay? And if we sort of think that the Bible or the New Testament or the book of Romans, for that matter, is just a tract on how to get saved, oh, we'll miss it. Because Paul isn't just telling them, hey, you were a sinner, you did bad stuff, now you're saved, now you're going to heaven. That's, that's, not, that's just scratching, barely scratching the surface. What he's telling them is you're a part of something epic and cosmic. Something that, the, this is what Romans 8, you're, you're a part of something the whole creation is longing for. God 
is rescuing his creation from the reign of sin and death. Your body and, and everything in the world has been enslaved and now through Jesus, everything is being set free and is being redeemed and this is the hope in which you have been saved, okay? So we have to, however you want to summarize that, but we have to get that in our mind. If we're going to understand the rest of the book, and now it's starting to get into some territory where he's going to talk about things that people have, predestination and election and chosen, and what is that all to do with? If you don't get the first eight chapters, then the rest of it's going to be pretty much impossible. If you still think he's just talking about you and your personal salvation, well, then it's going to be really confusing. And then we get into weird conversations about free will and predestination. All of those are products of Western thinking that has kind of come along in the last 2,000 years. He wasn't just talking about any one individual being saved. He's talking about this, that God is rescuing his creation and that his wrath is going to be revealed against sin and sin and death will ultimately be destroyed. But in order for you not to be destroyed when the wrath of God is revealed, for you to be redeemed, your bodies along with the whole creation, you have to be rescued. And the way that happens is through being justified and adopted and given the spirit. And the spirit helps you Right As you live this life in the flesh, waiting in anticipation of the redemption that is to come, the Spirit helps us. And that's exactly where we pick up, finish Romans chapter 8. So, Romans 8 verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So here, here we are, right? We are, we are weird creatures. Christians are weird creatures. We're sort of a hybrid, right? We are, we are still in this cursed body. That is weak. That's what flesh, that sarks. That's what our, our flesh is weak. It's morally and physically weak. It's dying physically, but it's also morally compromised and we, we make mistakes and as hard as we try, we don't do what's right. And so we, we are f- weak fleshly creatures. We're dirt creatures. Yet we're infused with the spirit of God, adopted into the very family of God caught up in into the divine family. And so we have the spirit of God, but we're still living in these fleshly bodies. And so we're weak. And so Paul says, the spirit helps us in our weakness. Here is how he helps us. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, right? I mean, huh, this is epic, what you're a part of. And, and how could we possibly wrap our mind around what to even pray for? How do, how do we know? We, we don't see the big picture. We see 70 years, maybe, 80 years, 90 years, maybe. We see that, this tiny little window, and God sees this big picture. And how, how do we know what's good or what's bad or what, what's ultimately going to help bring about good? In the, I mean, how do we know, right? How do we know what to ask for? How do we know when we're, we're asking for something that we should be asking for or saying, hey, take away something that we actually need? But here, the Spirit himself intercedes with us, or for us, rather, with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit just like in every area of our life, participates with us. As we're trying to do the will of God, 
Even in our prayers, the Spirit of God participates with us in our prayers with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So here we are, these sort of creatures that are part of the old creation, waiting for the redemption of our bodies. But yet at the same time, we're part of the new creation in our spirit. And so we live in this sort of in-between where we're, we're bringing about through our love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, we're being a part of the new creation, but at the same time, we're, we're still weak and the Spirit of God, he's helping us even in our prayers to be part of and ask for and do the will of God. Now, verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, that's us, right? All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I mean, you could pull that verse like out of context and slap it on like a engraving or something or put it on a bumper sticker. And it's great, right? And I mean, it, and it's encouraging and it's powerful. And I'm not, we probably have two or three of those signs in our house. And I love this verse. It's great. But, but just thinking, like sometimes we take it to mean like, well, something bad happened to me today. You know, I, I stubbed my toe and I thought it was a bad thing. But it turns out if I hadn't stubbed my toe, then I wouldn't have found $10 on the floor. And hey, I guess everything works out for good. You know, it's like, wait, that's, that's not what Paul is saying, is it? He's, he's, I mean, you know, sometimes that does happen, but that's not, it's bigger than that. It's way bigger than that. It's better than that. The, the good news is so much better than that. Just like thinking, hey, something bad happened to me today and it's going to work out next week for something good. That's, it's bigger than that. Ultimately, epically, cosmically, God is making you and me, us, his people, those who love him. He is making us into the people he wants us to be forever, right? He's shaping us and molding us and the things that we go through and we think this is hard and this hurts and it stinks and it's bad and I don't want to be a part of it. God is saying all of this, I'm using it to shape you and I'm using it for your good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be, here's the key, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. So Jesus, in his perfect perfection, perfect perfection, yeah, sure, uh, his, in his perfection and in his resurrected state, in his glorified state, you and I are waiting and are becoming and being shaped and molded into his image so that we will be glorified and we will reign with him and he is our Brother, he's the firstborn of this new creation. And everything that's going on now, we can trust that God keeps his promises. And that all of this, all of this, will work together for good for those of us who love him and are called according to his purpose. Why? Because he chose us. We are his chosen people. That doesn't mean he chose you, okay? Let's get over ourselves, right? It doesn't mean like he picked Wes and he didn't pick George over here. He picked Wes. He didn't pick this person. It means we are his, his chosen people. Like Israel was his chosen people. We are his chosen people. Those of us that are in Christ Jesus 
And he is molding us and shaping us to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Isn't that good news? Right? If God is for us, if he has done all of this for us, done what? Justified you made you righteous, put you in a covenant relationship with himself, adopted you into his family, given you his spirit, put his spirit within you, taken out your heart of stone. We talked about last week, Ezekiel 36, taken out your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh. If he's done all of this for you, if you are his chosen people, then what are you afraid of? What, what, What are you afraid of? Who can be against us if God is for us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He loves us so much and his plan was so epic and so wonderful and he was so committed to keeping his promises through Jesus that he gave his only begotten son that this people, you, might be rescued as the first part of the new creation. And so if this is what God has done for you, if this is how committed to you he is, then you of all people ought to know that we of all people ought to know that God is a keeper of promises. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us what? All things. You are his children and you will inherit all things. What are we afraid of? Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. You are a forgiven people. And and don't you know that, that the church in Rome and the church all over the first century world had accusers? They had accusers that were Gentiles and they had accusers that were Jews. And every time they turned around, they were shamed. Shamed. We don't really live in a shame culture. They lived in a shame culture where if, if you did something that the community, it's becoming more and more a shame culture actually, where you do something more and more that, that the community doesn't appreciate or thinks is wrong, then they, they shame you and they shun you and, and that forces you to say, okay, well maybe, maybe I was wrong and I'll change my ways because the, the peer pressure from the community Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? What's the implied answer to all of those things? No, no way, thank you, no way, no way, none of these things. For your sake we're being killed all the day long, we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the gospel. This is the euangelion. God has kept his promises. He is rescuing and redeeming his creation and you are a part of that. He is committed to you. 
his son and him giving his son is the evidence of that. The spirit that lives within you, that's transforming you, that's pleading on your behalf, that spirit is evidence of that. So if you ever get into a moment where you're like, I don't know, and I'm not confident, and I'm afraid, and what if, and what's going to happen, none of these things will be able to separate us from Christ, from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. You are the chosen people of God. And think back to all of the stories in the Old Testament. Uh, Those moments of what the Hebrew writer, Hebrews 11, would describe as faith, right? The confidence, the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Even though you can't see it, you're confident about it. You think about people like David. Why would David, this untrained young man go out onto the battlefield against a trained battle-hardened soldier that was making the entire army including the king head and shoulders taller than everybody else he was making everybody else quake in their boots and he goes out there and fights this dude why i'm a child of god i'm part of the people the chosen people of god if god is for us who can be against us right that is us church Not just you, but us. This is what we're a part of. You are the chosen people of God. God knew before time began, before the world was created, he knew that this was how he was going to rescue humanity and creation by sending his son and making us his chosen people. And so we have to be a people, if we believe this, if we believe this, then we're a people who walk by incredible faith that say, if God is for us, then who can be against us? And none of these things will separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Now, kind of shift gears just a little bit. Chapter 9 and verse 1. Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. This is, how, this is how bad this is weighing on his heart. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Who's he talking about? Fellow Jews, right? You don't stop being part of your ethnic group or your cultural group, or your racial group, when you become a follower of Jesus. You don't stop being a part of your physical family when you become a follower of Jesus. You don't stop being a part of your neighborhood when you become a follower of Jesus. In fact, being a follower of Jesus means you love those people more than you ever did before. Not that you love them less, you love them more now. And Paul says, oh, it breaks my heart, and I am so heartbroken that I'm, I'm a part of this epic rescue plan, that God is honoring us and giving us his love in Christ Jesus. But there are so many of my fellow Jews, my fellow Israelites, who aren't in Christ Jesus. And they are under the wrath of God. And that breaks my heart. In fact, Paul would go so far as to say, listen, I I almost wish that I was cut off so that they could be part of this because it hurts me so bad that they're not. Verse four, 
They're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. I mean, it almost seems unfair, doesn't it? Really? This group of people that that all of this stuff belongs to them, they are Israel. Theirs was the promises and the prophets and the law and the covenants and the worship and all of it. This is our heritage and our culture. This is who we are. We are Yahweh's people. But because we haven't accepted Jesus, now it's all gone? It almost seems unfair, right? And that's exactly what Paul has been addressing for the first few chapters. That's what he's going to address right here is, is that unfair? Is it unfair? Is it unfair for God to honor Gentiles and and bestow on them justification and adoption and give them his spirit and then shame and judge and punish Jewish people who don't accept the Messiah. That's the question he's going to deal with. Verse 6. But it's not as though. Okay? So, right there. It's not as though the word of God has failed. Now, here's a little side note. Here's a little side note. Sometimes we, we, uh, we replace word of God with Bible. We tend to do that, right? The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we, we take, anytime we see word of God, we replace it with Bible, right? And when, when Paul means what we call Bible, he says scripture, right? The sacred writings. And, and that is inspired by God, right? Peter would say the scriptures came about by prophets of God who were carried along by the Holy Spirit writing these things down, right? But when Paul says word of God, When the rest of the scriptures say word of God, they mean something a little bit different. They mean something that God has promised, a command that God has given, a promise that God has given, a a declaration that God has given, something that God has said, this is going to happen, right? Okay, now there's lots of those that are found in the Bible, in the scriptures, but this is something a little bit more specific. And so he says, listen, it's not as though the word of God has failed. What he's talking about is that I'm going to save Israel, right? I'm going to redeem and bless and restore Israel. So Jesus came to do was to be the king of the Jews, right? To be the king, the Messiah for Israel and gather up the lost tribes and bless them and and restore them and all of these things. And Paul says it's not as if the word of God, when he says, I'm going to do this and all Israel will be saved and this is my promise to you, it's not that his word has failed. For, why? Because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not everybody who is physically an Israelite is really part of Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Just because, just because you physically descended from Abraham doesn't really mean you're part of Israel. Israel, the people that God is rescuing and redeeming, is made up of Jews and Gentiles. He's already gone through this to some extent, hasn't he? To say that, how do you become a descendant of Abraham? What is it that Abraham had that made him righteous? Faith, right? Abraham had faith. That's why he was in a right covenant relationship with God. And so Paul says, 
not everybody that's descended from, from Abraham is, are really his, his offspring or his children. But through Isaac, and then he quotes this, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. I had to wrestle with that a little bit this week. What does that mean? Did Abraham have other children besides Isaac? Namely who? Ishmael, right? So he had a child before Isaac. But was Ishmael the chosen one through whom the blessings and the promises came? Nope, it was Isaac, right? That's what every Jewish person believed, right? And, and Paul is saying, listen, just because someone came from Abraham's loins doesn't make them part of the chosen people. It doesn't make them a part of Israel. Ishmael came from the chosen pe- or came from Abraham, but he wasn't part of the chosen people. It was Isaac. Why? Because that's the one God picked. It's God's choice. If it was man's choice, then Abraham could just have a bunch of kids and it would just be Abraham's choice and Abraham's will and Abraham making these things come true. But it's God who says, I pick Isaac. All of these blessings will come through Isaac. It was God who chose, not, not Abraham who chose. Verse 9, for this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, verse 10, not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac. So Rebekah also had children. And though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, did she have two children? Yep, Jacob and Esau, right? And they were both descendants of Isaac, and they were both descendants of Abraham. But did they both get to be the promised ones? Nope. Because it's God's choice. God gets to choose. Who am I going to bless? Who am I going to honor? Who am I going to have mercy on? She was told the older shall serve the younger. As it's written, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I hated. God picked Jacob, not Esau. Why? Because it's God's choice, right? It's not man's choice. It's God's choice, right? Just because someone is physically... And again... All of this, we have this tendency to read it and and say, well, what does this mean about me? Did God pick me? That's not the question, right? He's talking about two groups of people. He's talking about those who are in Christ Jesus, those who have the love of God in Christ Jesus, and those who are merely Israelites, descended from the flesh. And he says, listen, you know this. Jewish Christians that are reading this letter, you know this. You know that just because somebody had the right dad, doesn't make them a promised child or part of the chosen people. Isaac and Ishmael both had the same father, and only one of them was the chosen one. Jacob and Esau both had the same father, and only one of them was the chosen one, right? God gets to pick, not you. It's not by human effort that who's the, who's the chosen group of people here? Is it, is it this group or this group? It's God's decision, Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is it unjust for God to pick one instead of the other? By no means, for he says to Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Paul already laid out in the first chapter, all of us Jews and Gentiles are sinful, right? 
So if God's going to rescue and redeem and bless and honor and have mercy and forgive, it's a gift. And who are we to say to God, oh, sorry, God, you can't give that gift to these people. You need to give the gift to these people. You need to give the gift to these people because they had the right dad and mom. Because they came from the right family. Because they're of the right race. Who are we to say that? And, And if you lived at that time and you were a Jewish person... Even if you were a Jewish Christian, you would think, my Jewish brother over here or my Jewish uncle over here, you know, he doesn't believe in Jesus, but he's a good Jew and he loves God. He ought to be favored above this stinking Gentile who now all of a sudden wants to be part of our family. It's how you might feel about it. And God God says all throughout his word, and Paul is playing on these themes. It's not up to your uncle, who's a great Jewish guy, to rescue himself. Because all of us, all creation is enslaved to sin and death. And God is rescuing people based on what? Faith in Jesus Christ. Does that mean you don't have a choice on whether or not to put your faith in Jesus? Of course you have a choice whether or not to put your faith in Jesus. He's arguing that just because someone is Jewish doesn't mean, just because their father, their great-great-great-great-grandfather was Abraham, doesn't mean they get preferential treatment because it doesn't depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. I struggled with that too. And I was like, wait a second. I mean, he, he hardens Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh becomes an object of, of shame and humiliation and judgment. So why does, why does he pick up on this idea? For this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you. He's saying that that's the reason God exalted Pharaoh was so that he could show his judgment on him, right? And and what's the parallel here? Well, the parallel is the people of Israel, right? Why, Why did you raise us up? Why did you protect us this long? Why did you let Jerusalem be rebuilt? Why did you bring us back from captivity? Why did you let the walls get rebuilt? Why did you let the temple get rebuilt? Why did you let us hang on so long? Why did you just wipe us off the map if this is what's going to happen? If Jerusalem's just going to be destroyed again, if we're just going to be shamed again, if we're just going to be humiliated again, why did you why did you let that happen in the first place? Paul's answer, like it or not, is God gets to choose. Verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? What if God said, listen, I'm going to let this, especially Jerusalem, I think that's a helpful way to think about it. This this city of Jerusalem, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, and I'm just going to, it's prepared for destruction. It's going to be shamed and humiliated and judged, and I'm just going to wait And what if it was prepared for that purpose in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Jerusalem is a city that God preserved and protected and was patient with, but ultimately they crucified the Messiah, right? The Jewish leaders rejected and crucified the Messiah. And and 
If you were a Jewish person or Jewish Christian even, you might think, well, that's unfair to judge and humiliate and destroy the city and these people. Why would you do that? And then, and then, not only you're going to bring judgment on them, but then you're going to, you're going to elevate and exalt and rescue and adopt and justify and make righteous a group of a ragtag bunch of Jews and Gentiles on the basis of what? Where did they come from? Who are their parents? What's their genealogy? It doesn't matter. They put their faith in the Messiah. And because they put their faith in the Messiah, God has chosen to honor them on that basis, on the basis of their followers of Jesus, and on the basis of rejecting Jesus, even if you are from the lineage of Abraham. You are not really Israel. You are not really Abraham's descendants because of your lack of faith. Verse 25, as indeed he said in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they, sh- they will be called sons of the living God. It was God who in the first place picked Abraham. Of all the people he could have picked, It was God who picked Isaac. That was God's choice. And so now if God decides, I'm going to pick as my chosen people those who have faith in the Messiah, that was always the plan, right? And that everybody who comes to the Messiah, everyone who comes to Jesus is part of the chosen people of God. That's God's choice. If God says, listen, it's not about race or ethnicity. It's not about uh, ancestry. It's not about who your parents were. It's not about what country you live in or where you're from. It's not about the tribe you come from. It's on the basis of faith. And if that's God's decision, then that's God's decision. If he wants to call us his people then it's God's decision to call us his people. Verse 27, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left uh, left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? Verse 30, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that's by faith. We're in a right covenant relationship now out of the blue, even though our parents didn't do anything and our parents were nobody. And now we're in a right relationship with God, and, and, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it's written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The stone that the leaders of Jerusalem and the leaders of Israel and the Jewish leaders said, we don't want this stone. We don't want to build our life and our future and our hopes on this rock, and they tossed it out. That has become the foundation of the new temple. That has become the foundation of the new city. That has become the foundation of the new Jerusalem, the new Israel. And what is that stone? It's Jesus. All of those who build their life on that stone are part of the new Israel. And those who do not are ashamed and put to shame. Summary, my summary of Romans 9, here are you. God is not unfair for choosing to honor Gentiles who believe in Jesus 
nor unfair for choosing to shame Israelites who reject Jesus. Now, in the next chapter, he'll get into, well, does that mean that God has rejected Israelites? No, Paul would say, I'm a Jew, right? Jesus is a Jew. There's lots of Jews that are followers of Jesus. There are lots of Israelites that are followers of Jesus, but that's not what makes us part of the covenant people of God. It's faith in the Messiah. Let's pray. Most Holy Father, Lord, we are incredibly thankful that even though we didn't come from the right families, We didn't come from the right tribes or the right ethnicities, that all of that doesn't matter, but that you have drawn us to your son and that we have built our lives upon him and that we are part of your rescue of this world. May we, Father, reach out to our neighbors and our friends and our family and tell them about Jesus the Messiah, that they too might put their faith in him and be justified and adopted and given your spirit to dwell within them and help them in their weakness as he does so for us. Father, may we walk in the light as he is in the light. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.